Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, I have some emails from listeners. I thought we'd go over them and answer them. What do you say? Yes. Let's dispense wisdom. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your friend from graduate school from way back when. We've been friends for 25 years. Not just since graduate school. We actually hang out sometimes, too. I won money from you last time Penn State played UW. Thanks for reminding me. Twice, I think. Twice I won money. I'm going to find that one marker. And I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out what a wisdom dispenser would look like. Would it be like, it would look old. Oh, yeah, sure. Maybe made out of wood. Uh Uh-huh. And it would, I'm thinking like one of those change dispensers. (laughs) You have, do you still have yours? I can't believe that you remember I had, no, I don't. Oh, too bad. Yeah, I used, I, I was an ice cream man. Yeah. And we would be dispensing so much change yeah. that I had one of those hand, you know, people would put them on their belts, belts and you'd carry all the different kinds of coins. It's funny to think back to then because the ice cream that I would sell would go down to 25 cents. You know, you could give me a quarter and I would give you a popsicle. Yeah. And I'm guessing today that's not that's not the lowest price. They probably take cards now too. <laughs> yeah. I remember the most expensive thing that I sold in my ice cream truck was a Mario Mario Pop. Is what it was like a a yogurt pop that looked like a Mario's head. Really, I have no idea if we had license to do such a thing, uh. and it was a dollar twenty five. Whoa! And it was like whoa. What was the most popular? Uh, what was the most popular? I sold a lot of Dairy Gold ice cream sandwiches. Yeah, those are good. I. Also sold a good amount of Twin Pops. That was the oh, twenty-five cent. Sure. Um, I also sold. There was like a there was like a yogurt pop. I think that was like fifty cents. The ice cream sandwich. There was a lot of things for fifty cents. Yeah. And then I think one thing jumped up to seventy-five. Oh, the bomb pop. That was that's the red, white, and blue. Oh one. yeah, rocket pop. Ro- okay. Yeah, that's what we called them. Yeah, rocket. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Dixie cup. You know what that is? No. That's a Philadelphia thing. It's just a little cup full of ice cream, usually vanilla, sometimes chocolate, hard as a rock, and they give you a wood spoon. Oh. Did you give out wood spoons for any of the treats that you sold? No. No spoons. Yeah. yeah. Push-up? Do you ever sell push-up? Uh, no, I didn't yeah. sell push-ups. Oh, well, you know. I think I just had like six things. Yeah, yeah. I don't think... Oh, there's a fudge... Fudgesicle. That was pretty popular. Oh, yeah. I liked those. Those are good. And then maybe like a Dove Bar-ish kind of thing yeah. for like 75 cents. Yeah, you don't need a lot. You're bringing ice cream to the masses. They're yeah. going to take what they can get. But when you see modern day ice cream dudes, yeah, they will. their whole side of their van will be plastered with like 25 different items. Like stickers of the various things they sell and yeah. so forth. Yeah. And I just, I, I always just think like, my God, that's a, because... You have to, the thing you have to do as a, you know, ice cream man is you have to carry all that with you. You you're, do. You're a driving store. Freeze, freezer. And you need to have inventory yep. and you need to freeze it all. Yeah. Right. And you also have to have it on hand. So uh, it's a pain in the ass yeah. to like have a lot of different options. Um, but man, did I go through a lot of change. You did know? you, did you drive like a little old Jeep mail? Yep. Mail, Old mail. mail. They converted mail. mail. It, well, what looked to be, or they might have even been military. I'm not yeah. even sure. But they, yeah, they kind of look like mail trucks. Yeah. And they would convert them, yeah, into, into. these. That they would make the back into a freezer, freezer. Right. That you would put dry ice to keep everything. Oh, really dry? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. It sure. wasn't. It wasn't refrigerated. Yeah. It was just a big cooler. Right. And you would buy dry ice, and then you would bring inventory into the cab. Of, there was another little cooler with dry ice in there. Right. And so, you, you know, anyway. Did you have that stupid song playing? Oh. Da, 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 da. Oh, no, here it comes. Da, 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 You should apologize to everybody right now. Da, 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 da. Oh, you're a bad man. Da, 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 This is not wisdom being dispensed. Da, 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 da. Somebody write it and tell them to stop. I would dream that song. They didn't do the song where I'm from. They did... These sleigh bells. 
Oh. Yeah. Just hear bells. the bells and you come running. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'd be better. Yeah. When I grew up, our neighborhood, have I ever taken you back to my parents' house before? No, I don't think I've ever been there. I've never been invited. <sighs> I think there were straining orders up, too. Yeah. The it's it's in a suburban rural area. Yeah. You know, it's like it's not like suburban Seattle right. where you have lots of houses and the streets are pretty tight. Right. So when you heard the ice cream man when I was a kid, the, he would be maybe like half a mile away. Wow. And you couldn't just go up to your you couldn't just walk out your door like when I did it because I was in South Everett when I did it. Most people could just kind of walk out their door and like run up to me. Right. And so it was pretty rare that people, because I would go to the heavy populated areas and it was pretty rare that someone had to like run, you know. And the other thing is is I would go every street. I would just go up and down every, you know, at three miles an hour. And, but in my neighborhood, neighborhood, even if you went up and down every street, like um, by the time you heard it, you definitely had to like run. Yeah. And so there were probably half the time, by the time I got cash from my right, mom, right. about half, I mean, just getting up to the main street was oh. actually kind of a haul because we, we live on this long dirt driveway. My parents still have the long dirt driveway. Wow. And uh, yeah, I would have to run like half a mile and like half the time I wouldn't catch them. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. You're a customer waiting yeah. to pay money on, on the line. And the guy's going too fast. Too fast. Yeah. Yeah. We used to try to chase him down, but I lived in a neighborhood that's more like where you delivered, not where you lived. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could catch him. uh, If we could find him, yeah. But it makes me wonder, like, were they actual bells? Yeah, they were. This just this long string of, they sounded like sleigh bells. And he just had this lever. He just pulled the rope and... Oh, he had to pull the rope? It wasn't automatic? No. Oh, my God. Yeah. That'd be annoying. Tedious. But it seems like it wouldn't be loud enough. Oh, they were pretty loud. Interesting. But it's not like, I mean, the houses are like as close as the houses here. Okay. You know, you wouldn't need. In today's world, no one would hear it because everyone would be like watching Netflix or something. <laughs> but back when we were kids, it was like we we're just sitting there staring at the wall playing right. with like a rubber ball or yeah, something. Running around I mean, I remember literally just playing with a Super Bowl. Super Bowl? Oh, Super Bowl. Yeah, I remember those. Um, sure. For like five hours. Yeah. It's like, okay, how can I bounce this off? Catch this it thing? in a soup cup or. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's a soup cup? I don't know. Soup you can. Just, soup can. You just made that up. In I the, did. In the moment. All right. Patron Magdalena wrote in I am currently searching for a new therapist. What is a better option? A person that puts me at ease and is really, and is really caring, or someone who frequently hits the nail on the head and subjects close to my on subjects close to my heart bob what do you think uh they both have their merits yeah why not have one that does both Mm. i mean you don't want someone that's confrontive necessarily i mean you know oh no this is what's really going on i nailed you you know you don't need that right but you probably want someone that is insightful and also compassionate and caring i mean that's what i would want yeah I like that answer. Thank you. Because I think that often people will dichotomize this when it doesn't have to be. You, can be, to be. you can be very caring and very and put people at ease, yeah. which every therapist do, and at the same time hit the nail on the head and um, point out things that are maybe a little hard to hear sometimes. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the other thing that I'll say is it depends on your goals as a client. Are you because there's so many different reasons why people go to oh, therapy? Yeah, that's the truth. I mean, if you're just going to quit smoking, for example, then that kind of deter- that determines like a different sort of thing you're looking for, right? Yeah. Um, are you are you wanting to process a lifetime of difficulties that you've had in your life? Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably not going to want someone who is on the confrontational side. No. Um, are you looking for couples therapy? Uh, so it really just depends on what you want. You know, are you looking? So, you know, that's what I would just dig down, dig down deep and look for that. The other thing is, is that I would also shop around because similar to dating when, you know, like you'll ask a 20 year old, you know, okay, who's your perfect person? 
and they'll be like, I, he has to be that, and he has to be sure. this, he has to, you know, th- there'll be very specific things that people will say, yeah. you know, like, he has to love Cocker Spaniels or something. Like, literally, people, they, they, narrow. Yeah. Yeah. You ask a 45-year-old who's dating, they will have wildly different statements, you know, yeah. they'll be like, well, breathing is good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, well, I mean, you know, more specifically, they'll just be like, well, it, it's hard to know exactly what I want until I see it. Sure. Cause I could make a guess as to that, but you know, right. I've been wrong before. And so what I'm looking for is just someone who fits well with yeah, me. Right. And I, you know, can't see that on a profile on an ad. You got to go get in a room with somebody and, Right. Find out how they smell. And no one fits perfectly together. So yeah. there are things that you're going to have to sacrifice. Like, I want someone who does these 10 things. Well, you know, no one fits all those criteria and also likes you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so sometimes it's just good as a person. Just just go look for a therapist and see who fits well. And, yeah. um, you know, just any. She also said, do you find the whole meeting a new therapist like dating? In my experience, it shares so many common aspects. I go there full of hope, but I'm also ready to to be able to move on if I'm disappointed. Hmm. Also, it seems like the chemistry is decided within the very first sitting. Hmm. I've been asking this question everywhere, but so far I got no real feedback. Bob, is the first meeting with a therapist like dating? I don't like that metaphor for some reason. It sort of turns me off. I got to say, though, my, my my counselor that I have now, I didn't think he was going to be able to help me. Nice guy. Yeah, and that was two years ago. So so your first impression? My first impression was not accurate. And actually, best therapist I ever had. Really lovely guy. Hmm. Younger than me, too. What session did you figure that out? What number? I think it was more like a dawning, not a moment. But like, when did the... Because... Oh, roughly? Roughly six months in. Interesting. And then I said, we talk about it. Like I said to him, you know, when I got here, I didn't think you were going to be able to help me. But why do you stick it out? Like, because, you know, say week two, if I would have come to you and I would have been like, or I don't know, week four, you would have been like, "Ah, I don't really think this therapist is going to be able to help me. Well, um, I was desperate when I hired him. Uh, There was a really important goal I had. um, And I, um, it's funny, you know, Seattle, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting four therapists, but they're shitty at returning phone calls to prospective clients. He was one of two that actually called me back, and he called me twice. You know, when I didn't return his call the first time, he called again, which I, you know, I really dig. That's really lovely. Um, why did I stick it out? Because I thought when I, when I hired him, I, it turns out that my actual goal is not what my stated goal was when I hired him. That's a weird thing to say, but then, you know... No, it's not weird. I think that happens all the time. Oh, good. I'm glad you say that because I think... You know you know who Lacan is? Object relations guy, French? Uh-huh. Yeah, he's like, people don't know why they go to counseling. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it is. It turns out to be true. But anyways, um, and the, my reason for showing up turns out to have nothing to do with the reason I, I actually sought him out in the first place. Yeah. One of my very first clients that I worked with for many years... I learned this lesson that she came in to talk about parenting Yeah, and we had four sessions. And by that fourth session, she, we had basically done all that we needed to do and she didn't actually need that much parenting help to begin with. Right. And so during that session, we were talking about parenting and there wasn't really much to talk about because it would felt like we were done. Yeah. And so I said like, Oh, so Feels like we're done. Feels like, you know, maybe you don't need me anymore. I don't know. What What do you think? And she freaked out and she said, no, 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 I still need you. And I'm like, oh, well, what else would you like to work on? Because mm-hmm. I didn't get any vibe that she wanted to work on anything else. Yeah. Well, it turned out that the real reason why she was in therapy, because she had preoccupied attachment yeah. and wanted to work with me for many years to heal from yeah. the attachment injuries and disruptions she went through early in life. And that's when I learned that was like the first year I was a therapist that clients don't necessarily come in with the real reason they want to go to therapy. And the client might not even know why they want to be in therapy. Really? 
And also to never terminate with a client if so. And this is a style. There's plenty of therapists who don't have the style, which is fine. But when I get a vibe like, okay, they're sitting in my office, but I'm not, I don't know why they're here or it feels like we're done. And I just keep making sessions because I know through, through experience that eventually like it'll, whatever is bubbling up will yeah. eventually emerge. Yeah. I just don't, both of us just might not know it, what that is what yet. It is, yeah. But they know that they need to keep coming yeah. and they know that they need to create that opportunity for that to bubble up. Yeah. And, and for me to suggest that we should terminate because I actually don't know what's happening is actually damaging to the client because yeah. they're just like, wait, so at any point you could just like could just get rid of me. Right. Like you don't, you don't really care about me. Right. And I'm the sort of therapist that is just like, I, I don't actually feel that way. And I don't want to give that impression. And, and because in my experience, I've never been in, in a situation where I have done that oh, and found after six months, boy, I should have terminated six months ago. Oh, that, yeah. Like I've never been there where I've, I've said, I should have brought up termination a long time ago. What a waste of our time. I've uh -huh. never thought that. Clients, when they keep coming, it's for a reason. Yeah. You know, therapy is a pain in the ass. It's expensive. You got to get in your car. You got to drive across town. You got to park. You got to wait, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a, it's a pain, you yeah. know, there's, it's not, and it's every week. It's not like your dentist every six months, you know, it's, it's every week you got to get there. And yeah. especially in Seattle, I mean, the traffic is just awful. And so it's, um, it's usually for a reason. I've never had a situation. I mean, have you ever had a situation where you're like, oh, we've been wasting our time this past year. I should have terminated a year ago. Have you ever thought that? I have, and I've made the mistake when I was young and um, have discovered that patience is the order of the day. What do you mean? What mistake did you make? I terminated with somebody because I, I said to her, you know, we don't really have a goal here. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And she wanted to keep coming, and I misunderstood that. Oh. Yeah. So you terminated, and you realized it was a mistake. Oh, well, yeah, years later. Okay. Yeah. You think that she had uh, bubbling up yet to do? No, there's no doubt. Okay. Yeah, that I, I made a mistake. How do you know you made a mistake, really? 30 years of experience. You're just looking back. Yeah. Okay. And I almost did with somebody else uh, terminate because it, it was clear that what we were doing wasn't all that beneficial to him. And I couldn't think of anything else to do. And I'm so glad I kept my mouth shut and kept working with him because what I discovered is his reason for being there is really crucial and he cannot talk about it. Yeah. 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 It's just a shitty catch 22 for him. And I think what we do together is really important to his well-being and his welfare. What do you do to help? Um, I remind him that our reason for being there is to pay attention to him, to care about him, to be interested and curious and compassionate and I make him tell me what he wants does and he 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 sometimes he doesn't know right. and so I just stay with him I just stay with him and you know one of the things I'm discovering is most of what's useful is happening right now somebody tells me a story about you know their marriage say there's a reason that they're telling me about it right now that isn't on the table you know like like what is the point am I wanting am I wanting my therapist to be, to care about it. Am I wanting somebody to vent to? Am I wanting somebody to validate me? And you know, what a jerk my spouse is and what am I wanting? And am I ever going to say that? This is what I want you to do. Cause it's a really vulnerable thing to say. And for the person I'm, I'm thinking of now, him learning how to say what he wants is one of the main reasons he's sitting in my office. Right. And it's really hard for him. It's really hard. Lovely, lovely guy, but really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And we get emails all the time from clients who have therapists who don't understand that or seemingly don't understand yeah. that. And the therapist will be standoffish yeah. or, or terminate with the client right. or um, be upset or something. Right. I mean, it can be a very counter-transferential situation. I'm guessing you have that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. It, because... It, you can feel inadequate as a therapist yeah. because 
you're not like in the zone where the client is like you and the client are kind of going back and forth and you both you're in that alliance zone and you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, everyone's consenting and it's helping, you know, you're in this zone where it's just like, I don't know how to help. And I also feel kind of helpless too, because I'm, I sense the suffering and I don't even know where to begin because the client doesn't know where to begin. And so it, it, it can feel very upsetting and scary and, um, and you can have all, all of your inadequacy can come out because you're basically expressing what they're feeling, which is extreme inadequacy and confusion and sadness and disconnection and longing for connection. And so, uh, if you're as Bob is aware of that process, then you metabolize that and you take care of yourself and maybe you talk with people afterwards about it. But in the moment, you make sure that you don't let that get to your head and you stay focused and attuned to the client. Yeah. Um, but if you're not aware of countertransference, you don't know how it works, you don't know how to manage it, you don't have anyone to talk to, then you're just left there th- uh, to stew in your own insecurities and what often will emerge in that situation is judgment to the client. Yeah. Just like what's this client's stupid, you know, this client doesn't have this client doesn't have any goals, like just go away. Come back when you know what you want. Like why yeah. are you here? Right. Or why are you such a dud, you know? Right. Like I've heard therapists say stuff like this. And there's nothing wrong with having that notion because we're humans and we have emotions and It's informational. Yeah, it it tells you what's happening. But it's another thing to be like, and therefore I'm right, and yeah, I need right. to reject this client. Oh, yes. I mean, again, what I always tell people is people come to therapy because they have problems. Yeah. And one of the problems might be that they don't know what their problem is. Yeah. And so rejecting them on that basis means, you know, you have a broken arm and you go to your physician and they're like, oh, well, you have a broken arm. I don't want to treat you. That's gross. Yeah. Get out, get out of my office. Come back when your arm is healed. And then that, I'll treat you. And then I'll treat you. That's essentially what they're doing when they're reacting to their countertransference and yeah. terminating with these people. But it's it, not what they're thinking. No. It's unfortunate. What, what they're thinking is, is it's, uh, this is out of, out of my, uh, yeah. <laughs> what do they call it? Out of my skill set or something? Beyond oh, my skill set. Oh, beyond my skill set. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's take well, a break. Bad breath is, you know, it sucks because you can't smell your own. <laughs> I can smell my own bad well, breath. You, know, you got to go out of your way to do it. <laughs> uh, oh, about bad breath. Just a side note on that. I went to see Us, the movie Us. The oh, really? Jordan Peele movie. I'm not seeing that. That's too scary. It actually isn't that scary. Oh, okay. Like, I don't like horror movies. Yeah. It's it's really not scary. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, the, the trailer is a hundred times more scary than the actual yeah, it movie. it looks like a horror movie. Yeah. But it was a crowded theater, Oak Tree. With oh the, yeah, with the nice the seats. Yeah, nice. And the guy next to me, every time he like would sigh or something, his breath. Oh, but it was and it was the sort of breath that when I would breathe in, I would get a, a very. It was warm. Ugh. You ever had that before? When people, when you breathe in someone yeah. else's breath, and it it feels moist and warm. Yeah, it's, un- it's unpleasant. All right, let's take a break and shed ourselves from that visual. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. If you like our D&D episodes and you want to buy the new Dungeons & Dragons kit, go to criticalcore.org, sign up for the Kickstarter. We've already sold, uh, I think, thousands of these kits, and so uh, get yours now. Also, on June 1, 2019, we're starting a new tier system on Patreon, so if you want to sign up on Patreon, patreon or you want to move up the the tiers on patreon because you have the five dollar tier the twenty dollar tier and so on um the tiers are all going to all going to get more expensive on june one so if you want one of the tiers then and that matters to you for many people it doesn't um go to patreon before june one and become a patron um, all right did you know that argosy closed in uh this month really the whole university it closed yeah yeah, you didn't know that. I didn't so, know. That. So, so people have been wanting me to talk about this because you know it's, I guess. Do in, we know why? In my yeah. So, so what do you know about Argosy? Nothing. Yeah, but you've know you know yeah, yeah, of I it. Know and, it exists. Sidey, you know, right? Yeah, and they're well, they have a lot of different programs. Oh, okay, it's similar to Antioch actually, and yeah. that 
they have a lot of psychology programs and a lot of counseling programs, but they also have like other other programs as well as yeah. similar to Antioch. But but they're according to what I could find, it was something like ten thousand students ish or something. Wow, across. I don't, it seems like maybe 10 different campuses around the, the United States. So oh, they're okay. probably like twice as big as Antioch, but we're definitely in the same category in that we're not a university of Washington. We have several small campuses specializing in certain kind of graduate school things. And so all these students this month just found out we're in March right now. So when this publishes, this will be in April, but um, they're very upset naturally. I mean, can you yeah. imagine like, you're halfway through your program Ugh. or you're almost done. You're almost done. And then boom. You don't have a school no more. You don't have a school no more. And you have to either just that's it or figure out where else to go. Yeah. And, and you have to apply. Yeah. Because there's no other university. You can't just like sign up. You have to actually have to go through the application process, right. interview. You got to ho- negotiate. Hope that, you're, hope that your uh, credits will transfer. Oh, man. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. How long graduates took you? Four or five years? Uh, my doctorate? Yeah. Well, I did it in four, but in the history of that format, I don't think anyone had ever done it in four because it was like, yeah, it's usually five is usually the, the, but all of my classmates, I think out of all my classmates, there's like 25 of them who we all started together. I would say maybe one or two did it in five, maybe none. Oh. Um, most of them did it in six. six. And, I have classmates that are still in school Mm -hmm. and it's nine years later. Right. uh, Which is not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. They chip away. But imagine you're like five years into your thing and you don't have a school no more. Right. Oh my God. Awful. Yeah. So, so are you getting applications? So yeah, we as Antioch are uh, allowing people to come to us. Um, I don't think we're advertising it very heavily, but there are other universities that are more overtly because the, so the side program in Seattle closed down a long time ago. Oh, it did uh, that the Argosy oh, side program. So Argosy, the entire university just shut down, but oh. uh, 10 years ago they had a side program that they're trying to get off the ground and they couldn't get it accredited by, oh. by APA. Oh. I think that was the issue. And so they, they just completely, what they call sunset the program. Mm. And we actually acquired a number of their students and professors, like a good number of our initial oh. PsyD instructors were actually absorbed from the Argosy PsyD program. Right. For those of you who don't know, PsyD is a doctorate in psychology. It's the degree that people will get. Um, it's one of the degrees that people get to become a psychologist. Um, and that's the degree that I have as a PsyD. I also have a, another master's in marriage and family therapy, but um, actually, the master's is also in psychology with a concentration in couple and family therapy. Um, anyway, You're geeking out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so this happened before. Wow. But anyway, um, so the issue here, though, is that Argosy was founded in 2001. Yeah, which isn't that long ago. No. Antioch was founded in 1852. Well, right. One of the first universities in the United States. So it's a little bit of a difference there, but I can totally relate to this because we are, when I was chair, I was much more involved in all these conversations. There is a constant budget crisis occurring. Like there's, there was, everyone was always talking about budget crisis. And I was part of that system knowledge system for so long that, I was always, I started to gauge like what DEFCON of, of crisis are we at? We're always, you know, at DEFCON. It's just a matter of like what level, you know, a severe crisis meant you actually started laying people off or you had to actually cut back everyone's salary, which happened one year. Everyone had to take like a 3% hit in salary or something. Wow. Or, we had a complete freeze on hiring any new people and any retiring people couldn't be replaced. Yeah. Like those kinds of things. Oh, that's an actual like on the ground crisis of budget. Um, but there were other budgets that budget crises that would happen that were less so than that anyway. So it was always happening. And, and you know, if you're not of that world, 
you just think, well, universities, they just exist. Yeah, right. You know, or, and to some extent, people who aren't aware of this, they might just be like, well, you start a restaurant and it works, right? Oh, sure. Something like 90% of restaurants, their first year go out of business or something. Yeah. Because it's really hard to sustain. You have to have a consistent revenue flow and any kind of hiccup in that and you're done. And universities like Antioch, even though we're nonprofit or not for profit, I can't remember the difference, but um, it's, it's at any point in time, like if you don't get enough students in the door to pay tuition, we're done. We don't have a trust fund. We don't have, you know, all these kinds of things. Yeah. And so I look at, I would look at the numbers and I'd be like, man, if things don't turn around in the next couple of years, we're done. And that, that would happen many, many times. So I can, can, and I would get in at the upper level of a university like this, um, like mine, where it's so small and you're so dependent on tuition every other day, I would get some kind of report from administration around like, uh, we would know how many credits on average students were taking every quarter because it's not a matter, it's not a function of the number of students. It's a function of how many credits they take. Sure. So anyway, my point is, is like, I get the whole thing. And when I heard about Argosy closing, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of surprised it doesn't happen more often because these smaller universities, you have a bad couple quarters and it's done, you know? Um, but so why did they close? Well, I, I talked to some people who might know and I'll allow them to remain anonymous. And um, this is the speculation. Okay. Um, and some of these are facts. So Argosy was a for-profit university. Yeah. And which has its own problems, right? When you're like a university for-profit, right? You're, you're marketing and lying, you know, like when Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, did you see that documentary? Oh yeah. Crazy. Uh, it's like, you expect people to lie because you don't want them to lie that much, but you know, business people, they lie. That's what they do a lot of the time. And, but you don't want a university to be lying. You know, you don't want a university to be making dubious claims about their product. You know, you, you kind of expect them to be higher than that. So, and most universities aren't for profit. And so, or at least the ones that you think of like UW or something. Right. Um, but Argosy was, and so it's like it's like if Trump, you know, started a university, you oh, know, he did. Well, who, why would he do that? It's crazy talk. But he did. I know. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, so Argosy, anyway. But I don't know. Maybe Argosy was great. Who knows? But they struggled with money. Yeah. Uh, for a number of years, which I can relate to, and then they were criticized during that time for advertising their site program as being APA as like so. The whole thing about APA accreditation, American Psychological Association, is if you graduate from a program that's APA accredited, you get all these benefits that you wouldn't get otherwise. I would I would say that they're pretty limited. Like the the benefits are very specific, and unless you really care about those very specific benefits, then it shouldn't matter to you. Like when I graduated from my PsyD program, it wasn't APA accredited and it has had a, a zero effect on my life. Like it doesn't matter, you know? Right. Um, they've since become accredited, but anyway, by APA. But so, but one of the things you can tell your, your incoming students is we're going to become APA accredited. And as long as we become APA accredited by the time you graduate, which is in six years, right then you can claim that your degree was from an APA accredited program and get all the benefits. So even if it happens in the last quarter, so we promise you that this is going to happen and they would make those apparent promises and it didn't happen. And a lot of students would graduate being upset about it. Sure. Um, And that's what a for-profit person would do. You know what I mean? They would, because they just are more interested in for-profit, I guess, you know, anyway. Well, it's running it like a business is running it like an institution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a question of motive. Right. All, all, all these places have to have to take in more money than they spend in order to just survive. Right. But their focus isn't necessarily on the money. Right. 
Yeah. If you're for profit, then the people who own it presumably are investing money because they want more money back. Right. They have an interest in money. Right. As opposed to a legacy or an educational goal or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So then a couple of years ago, they were bought by Dream Center, which is a, according to one person I talked to, a quote unquote, somewhat shady Pentecostal organization in Los Angeles. So I don't know what that means, but they're a Pentecostal organization. Does that mean linked to the Pentecostal church? Yeah. That is somewhat shady. And it's called the Dream Center. And they bought a number of for-profit schools, or they wanted to. And the Obama administration actually wouldn't allow it, the Department of Education, Hmm. for... I don't know why. Uh, I suspect that the Obama administration was like, oh, this looks kind of shady. shady. Um, why is this happening? Right. But uh, when Trump became president, Betsy, Betsy DeVos, she, or DeVos, she allowed it. She was like, yep, yeah, go ahead, buy, uh, Pentecostal people, go ahead and buy Argosy along with another of for-profit institute, uh, universities. And then from reports, somehow Dream Center, this Pentecostal organization, screwed up somehow regarding the budget and marketing or like something drastically went wrong with their management mm-hmm. of the of Argosy and a number of other for-profit universities, by the way. And Argosy quickly failed in terms of their budget. Wow. And then the Department of Education cut their access to federal funds, Yeah, which means that your students... students can't get loans yeah which means that 99 percent of your students are are shit out of luck yeah and so uh and by the way the department of education that cut their funds was led by betsy devos by the way yeah (laughs) so it's like this ironic thing of like uh you're the one who created this problem she giveth and she taketh away yeah so that was a death nail and that happened in early march wow and then and then so all of a sudden these students are told uh, we're closing in a couple weeks and we're done. And yeah. all the professors and the staff are now out of a job. And, you know, it's just, it's just, it's pretty, it's pretty awful. Um, so yeah, I feel bad for the students. It's stressful enough as it is to do that sort of thing, to go to school. It is. And then to have this happen is just, um, I just, you know, I just feel really bad. And I guess, well, what lesson might be, take away from this story don't start a university for profit that's just you know me well so what's interesting is that they they did okay seemingly it's unknown what would have the future would have held but argosy did okay while they were for profit dream center actually wanted to change them i think to a a non-profit yeah which is interesting right because um but um i don't know to me, it's like the lesson is uh, universities can fail. Yeah. It can happen. Right. Um, the other thing is, is that the government regulation system is there for a reason. So if you want to blame someone for, for this, you, I think you can blame um, at least two people, two different organizations. You can bl- blame, I'm sure you can blame Dream Center for mismanagement. But you can also blame our current government for not following certain principles of trying to protect the consumer by not allowing certain deals to go through, which I don't I obviously have no idea what the maybe I would completely disagree with the way the Obama administration did things. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why we have government agencies that actually monitor this sort of thing. And, And maybe if the Trump administration was more mindful of this sort of thing and had a different set of values, Argosy would still be in existence. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, if your students can't get funding, right. then there's, you know, that's it. Right. So, anyway. Uh, let's read another thing here. Uh, let's see. So, I thought we'd go over an ethical vignette. And get your take on it. What do you say? I say yes. So the um, okay. So these vignettes are from the WMFT Ethical Guide vignette book. So we have a we have a Muslim couple from Egypt in the United States, mm-hmm. and you have a Euro American therapist, mm. and the 
uh, presenting problem is conflict about finances between the couple. Mm -hmm. And the therapist, after getting to know them a little bit, figures out, so they, you know, they're talking about finances and stuff. And the therapist refers the couple to a Muslim therapist because the therapist says, this is beyond my skill set. Because I don't know anything about Muslim culture or Egyptian culture. The couple says that they don't want to work with a Muslim therapist because they're afraid that this therapist might actually know the same people in the community. Right. And also the couple says they're actually perfectly comfortable working with this Euro-American therapist. But the couple therapist refers anyway. Mm. Is this an ethical violation, Bob? I don't think so. I think you're allowed to refer for any reason. It's not cool, Hmm. but I don't think it's an ethical violation. You actually can't refer for any reason. Oh, well, let's talk. It can be discrimination. Oh, right. Okay, fine. Yeah. No, I I get that. So so a a black person comes in and say, I don't treat black people. Well, yeah, that's just awful. Well, but 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 it's also illegal. Right. It's not only unethical, it's also illegal. Right. This is when, so this, this was actually put to the test by, uh, high courts when you would have so-called Christian therapists who were against gay people and they would, they would refuse to treat gay people. So their Uh, client would come in and they'd be like, what they would say, because they, they thought this would fly is I'm not competent to treat gay people because of my religious beliefs. Yeah. So they would think one that that principle is true. That is actually not true. No. That you can refer people for any reason. Not that, for any reason. That is not true. Well, I guess when I think about this, that I'm not thinking about shit like that. I'm thinking about clinical reasons. Right. But even that is actually questionable. So, like, say someone comes in for bipolar or something, or you, as you say, you refer for suicide. There is a possibility that someone could actually sue you for discriminating against them because they have suicidal thoughts. It's not likely to happen, but these cases have actually worked themselves through the courts. No, that would fail. It, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You can make, it's very, I've, I've read case law on this yeah, before. So, yeah. so let me give the example of the, of the gay uh, situation. So right. a client comes in, they're, they're gay and they get uh, the, the Christian therapist. Like I, I'm not competent to work with this. I'm going to refer them. Um, and if the therapist is, um, I can't remember the details, but there were two different cases, one in which the therapist lost and one in which the therapist won. Yeah. And there's a way to go about it that you have to demonstrate that you did your due diligence kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And there's another way you can do it that doesn't demonstrate that. And you actually can be sued on grounds of discrimination for, for lots of different things. All right. You know what I mean? Um, again, it's not, no, I, no, the, the, I, I get it. The suicide thing is a much higher bar to demonstrate discrimination than if they're gay and you don't like gay people. Do you know what I mean? Well, right. Yeah. But it is something that, that people need to think about. And that's what they're trying to get at with this vignette is, okay, a Muslim Egyptian couple comes to see you and you know nothing about Muslim culture and mm-hmm. you know nothing about Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about financial problems. And you're like, um, I'm going to refer this person. Actually, according to the uh, experts, this is possibly an ethical violation because they're not talking about anything that's inherently Muslim or inherently Egyptian. What they're talking about is finance problems, which you as a couples therapist should know how to talk with your clients about. Well, you have a point of view that you can offer. Right. And you should be competent enough to work with people regardless of what culture they're from, uh, with their finances, particularly when the client says they don't want to be transferred. Oh, no, I get that. I guess I guess the way I would do this, though, is I would say, this is the way that I want to work with you. And you know me, I'm emotion-focused. So is that okay? Right. Like, is that fit for you? If that fits for you, then we've got a basis to go forward. And if you, it doesn't, then I'm not the guy. Meaning that you would say, um, this is how I work. Yeah. And I mean, might you say something like, so you're Egyptian and you're Muslim, and I don't know much about that culture. Here's my approach. Does, does my approach interfere with your culture at all? Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. And if they're like, no, it's 
it has, you know, mm, could, could, it's rock and roll. Right. So that's what you're saying, right? That is all I'm saying. Right. Exactly. So what this vignette, you know, and it's hard to say from the vignette, but the only reason why the therapist referred was because the client was Muslim and Egyptian. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I hear it that way, I'm like, yeah, what the hell, man? That's just being a douchebag. Right. Yeah. So, but it's a common, dare I say, white person thing to do yeah. in the United States therapist to just be like, oh, well, you refer. Yeah. You know, oh, well, I, I'm not Muslim. You know, it, it's like the steps of emerging cultural awareness. Yeah. Like people start from a place of complete ignorance. Right. And then the, the, they get a little bit of education and they walk away with this notion that like, well, if anyone has a different culture than me, I have to refer them because I'm not competent to work with them, <laughs> you know? And, and so I need them to work with someone who actually knows what they're doing, which isn't a bad one of the principles you should have in your mind. That's, that's good that that entered yeah. your brain. You're, you're thinking but, about someone's welfare. Right. But that's not the only thing you should be thinking about, no. you know? Uh, there are other things like what the client is saying is like, well, we actually sought you out because you weren't Muslim right. and you weren't Egyptian, right. you know? So, uh, and two, like, we're fine with you. It's, it's, we're okay. We're comfortable. Yeah. With- I, I can't imagine referring anybody who said, no, I'm fine with you. I want to work with you. This, this sounds like it's first off, it's a bad business model. <laughs> right. And again, the, the, the question that you just ask yourself is, uh, say your client was a gay black man mm-hmm. from Alabama and you don't know anything about gay black men from Alabama. Uh, and then you just refer them because you just, yeah. for whatever reason, right. because of those identities, yeah. even though their presenting problem has nothing to do with that. Yeah. The other thing is, is even if it did have something to do with it, you right. probably should just become competent with that. Right. Like, yeah. you, like, uh, there's nothing in totally foreign about Muslims in Egypt that you can't uh, uh, work with on yeah. some level. You right. know? It's, not, it's not like talking to, you know, someone from another galaxy. It's it, uh, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, so anyway. Um, all right. One more quick one. A drunk man comes to residential treatment during uh, a residential treatment center for inpatient dual diagnosis treatment. Mm-hmm. So you're the therapist and you're doing the intake. Right. It's a treatment center, dual diagnosis, and he's drunk at the time. Right. You notice he's drunk and you send him home because he doesn't have the capacity to consent to treatment. Huh. Uh, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't do that. Why, what would you do? Well, I'm a, if I'm a treatment center for people with alcoholism, this is my guy, you know, like this is my, this is, this is who we treat. Exactly. So I don't see why. Yeah. They get, they get sober, right? Okay, fine. They're not drunk anymore. Then you get to ask. Right. But if they're not in danger, like, you know, they're not going to get the DTs or have seizures or whatever, then you got your client right there. Yeah. To expect a alcohol addict to not be intoxicated. Yeah. So in order for them to get treatment, they have to get sober. It's just crazy. But in order for them to get sober, they have to get treatment. Yeah, yeah. It's like, come on. Um, so now what this book talked about is it's a little unclear because oh. you actually, so say he's really drunk yeah. and he shows up and it's inpatient. So right. you register him and it's not a lockdown facility. It's a volunteer, but you, you take all this information, you put it in the file, you give him a bed. He, he wakes up in the morning and he doesn't even remember getting there. Yeah. Blackout. And he's like, this is bullshit. Like, um, you know, let me out of here. And you're like, fine, go, go. And he's like, um, how did you possibly get my consent to initiate treatment with me? Um, when I was so drunk, I don't even remember what happened. Um, I'm going to sue you for not making sure that I was competent enough to consent to the beginning of treatment. He would actually have a case for that. Oh, man. It, that would be a sucky thing, right? So what they suggested in the book was you actually get a number of other clinicians to assess him as well, two or three, to assess whether or not he's of sound mind, even though he's intoxicated, to consent. So you have a team approach. This is something that a lot of ethical dilemmas should involve. Yeah, right. Is don't do it alone. Even if you make the wrong decision, if you if a group makes a wrong decision, it usually looks like it was the right decision. If you make the wrong decision solo when you could have worked as a group, yeah. 
it is much easier for you to be, um, you know, justifiably accused of ethical and legal violations. But here's the problem with that. That's not about ethics. That's about appearance. That bothers me. Yeah. But it's also about, you know, imagine you're a judge and you're hearing these, this story and you're hearing like, um, that someone could have conferred, but they didn't. And you hear another person who was like, well, seven or four of these clinicians all agreed that there was enough evidence that the client was sober enough to consent. Well, I'm more apt to believe that than if it was just from one person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's still not about ethics. It's about appearance. It, and ethics is, I guess the lesson is that ethics is at least in part about appearance. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, I get that. It's about like, did you do your do not a fake job, but did you did you do did you show to future onlookers that you did something? You know, the file you could say, you know, documenting anything you could say. Well, that's just for appearance. Like you're only writing that down because you're trying to you're trying to make sure people know that you did your job. That's so, true. but yeah, I get that. I I get that. It's like. Shouldn't we just be evaluated on like the outcome or like the reality of the situation? This person is not harmed if they want to leave treatment the next day. They can be all upset, get their panties in a bunch. It's totally cool. They are still not harmed. Right. I think you have to demonstrate in order for there to be a, a legal case against it, you have to demonstrate that there was some harm. And I don't know what kind of circumstances could happen with this that would be that demonstrated uh, me, harm. Me too. But, um, but yeah, so anyway, I thought it was an interesting vignette because it was like, because um, I, it's, I, it's not something that you and I ever run into oh, no, no. where we have a client who we would determine is incapacitated to the, to the extent where they couldn't consent to treatment in that first session. You right. know what I mean? Right. I mean, have you ever been in a situation like that before? Similar. Yeah. You and I talked about it. It happened a while back. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well... It's not very frequent anyway. No, not frequent. Yeah. This All right. Very well, surprising. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Uh, Bob just dropped his phone on the ground. Hope it's okay. It looks like it's okay. Yeah, probably. It's got a strong case. <laughs> yeah. um, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which Bob broke his phone. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>